Welcome to Bite Size Battles. The Huns had first started moving westwards from the Great Eurasian Steppe around the early or middle 300s, causing a storm from which the Goths would flee, arriving in the Eastern Roman Empire in 376. The marauding Huns also meant various Germanic groups would be squeezed further and further towards the Western Roman Empire's Rhine frontier, which then saw Vandals, Alans and Suevi crash across it in 406. By 410, the Romans had managed to antagonise the Goths into ravaging Thrace and Italy, ransacking Rome and drawing in other Goths to become a Visigothic supergroup. The Vandals, Alans and Suevi had taken Spain for themselves after wreaking devastation upon Gaul, and Britain had been abandoned, left to the mercy of invasive Angles and Saxons. Despite a resurgence from 410 to 17, the death of its architect Constantius brought about Roman civil war and the next bout of disaster. The Vandals and Alans swept from Spain to North Africa, where they had taken Rome's most valuable provinces, threatening it with financial strangulation. And just as both empires had been about to launch a massive counter-strike to retake North Africa, the Huns had come storming into the Roman Empire with horse and bow, rape and pillage. They were eventually repulsed on the Catalonian fields, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. Without the driving force of North Africa's cash and grain, it had taken the last of the West's strength to deal with the Huns, and it now began to unravel. Welcome to the season finale, the fall of the Roman Empire. The first blow again came from the Vandals. Using the expertise of the shipwrights they captured in Carthage, they built their first ever fleet, and now used it to capture Sardinia, Corsica, Majorca, and even Sicily. Their fleets quickly dwarfed what the West could put to sea, and what the Romans had called Mare Nostrum for centuries, our sea was resolutely not anymore. The central Mediterranean belonged squarely to the Vandals. They raided up and down the Italian coast at will. A new Roman law even authorised people to carry arms again, quote, because it is not sufficiently certain under summertime opportunities for navigation to what shore the ships of the enemy can come. And shockingly for the West, the ships of the enemy came to Rome in 455, and it was sacked for a second time in 45 years. While the Visigoths had been relatively kind to the city, mostly contenting themselves with carrying off booty and a few slaves, the Vandals had no such qualms. Even before they entered the city, they destroyed all its aqueducts. And once inside, they spent a full two weeks looting, burning, killing and destroying. It is said that Pope Leo had convinced Geyseric to spare the innocent 
and refrain from completely destroying the city. But churches still went up in flames. The Temple of Jupiter had its gilt bronze roof stripped away. Private houses were ransacked, and even the Emperor's palace was badly damaged. And as the Emperor Maximus tried to escape the carnage, he was stoned to death by an angry Roman mob. Victor of Vita tells us that countless shiploads of Roman captives arrived in Carthage, bound for the Vandal slave markets. Alongside these, vast quantities of jewels, gold, silver and other valuables were looted and numerous works of art destroyed. This time, there was no Roman resurgence. The so-called last true Roman of the West Aetius had been assassinated in a coup the year before and there was no one like him to take his place. So, while a jubilant Geyseric returned to Carthage and a new Western emperor rose to what remained of power, the writing was on the wall. The empire could not protect its own capital from two sacks in 45 years. It had recently lost North Africa, the major islands of Sardinia, Corsica and Sicily, and was barely in control of Gaul and Spain due to rampant Frankish, Alamannic, Burgundian and Suevi warbands. The Western Roman Empire had been essentially reduced to the Italian peninsula and the northern Balkans. While it seemed, especially with hindsight, that the West was now doomed. The Eastern Roman Empire wasn't so quick to let it disappear without one final, monstrous throw of the dice. If they could reconquer North Africa for the West, its revenues might just jumpstart its heart back into life. Then, in time, Spain could be retaken and secured. Gaul could be re-established along the Rhine, and Thrace put back into order. It was plausible enough, so plausible that in 468 the Eastern Roman Emperor Leo spent more than £100,000 of gold amassing a fleet which would darken the seas. With it, he would send huge contingents of Egyptians and Illyrians armed to the teeth and he put a decorated general by the name of Basiliscus in command. This glittering armada of 50,000 men and 1,100 ships was about to test the Vandals to the limit. It first threw them out of Sardinia and Sicily, occupying the latter in force for the assault on North Africa. And in June, it set sail, the bows of those 1,100 ships cleaving the sparkling surface of the Mediterranean Sea. There was a tremendous amount of expectation and excitement. This was the moment of triumph, when the Romans would mete out their wrathful justice and litter the ground with barbarian bones. It took no more than a day to make the crossing, and sources tell us the fleet anchored in the shelter of Cape Bon, around 60 kilometres west of Carthage. This made perfect sense, as the summer winds here are usually easterly, 
So the next day they would ride the wind probably to the Bay of Utica, just a short march from Carthage where they would busy their sword arms on the Vandals. But the Vandals weren't waiting around to be used as sword practice and set to sea. By now they had acquired several years of maritime experience and used the local Romano-African sailors to power and navigate them towards the Roman fleet. The poet Sidonius writes that Africa herself complained. Now he arms my own flesh against me, and after all these years of captivity I am being cruelly torn under his authority by the prowess of my own people. Fertile in afflictions, I bring forth sons to bring me suffering. So, crude as it was by Africa's own expert sailors, the Vandal fleet suddenly hove into view around a headland and sounded the war horns. The Romans, of course, were startled into action, hearts pounding with fear and surprise. But once again, fate had chosen to side with Rome's enemies. The usual easterly winds of summer had turned northwest, so the Roman ships scrambling from anchor found themselves pinned against the western side of Cape Bon. In their desperation, all they could do with the heavy sail-powered merchant vessels laden with soldiers was to try to drag them away with lines attached to as many rowboats as possible. All the while, the vandals swept towards them with the wind at their backs. The oar-powered Roman warships were better off and swung towards the fast-approaching threat. But there was so much panic and disarray among the fleet that they could not form a coherent line. Sailors were screaming at each other to move out of the way. Hundreds of tiny rowing boats were trying to tug the large troop ships away and mighty Roman warships could not manoeuvre. Oars snapped, hulls collided, keels dragged. It was unmitigated chaos. Into this maelstrom, the Vandals released an ancient sailor's worst nightmare. Fire ships. The historian Procopius tells us, when the Vandals came near, they set fire to the boats which they were towing and when their sails bellied with the wind, they let them go against the Roman fleet. And since there were a great number of ships there, these boats spread fire wherever they struck. He goes on, As the fire advanced in this way, the Roman fleet was filled with tumult, and with a great din that rivalled the noise of the wind and the roaring flames, the soldiers and sailors together pushed with their poles the fireboats and their own ships as well, which were being destroyed by one another in complete disorder. The Roman fleet was in total confusion, pinned by the wind, crammed together and with fire spreading rapidly. And now the emergency became disaster. Into the seething mass of paralysed and burning ships, the Vandals themselves now came tearing, ramming and sinking at will. 
the Romans who were able to fight did so bravely. One Roman warship was boarded and Procopius describes a general named John. For a great throng having surrounded his ship, he stood on deck and turning from side to side kept killing very great numbers of the enemy from there. And when he perceived that the ship was being captured, he leaped with his whole equipment of arms into the sea, uttering that John would never come under the hands of dogs. John's death mirrored that of the Roman fleet, and the catastrophe meant the end of the expedition. A full hundred ships had probably been destroyed, with close to 10,000 men. The rest were so scattered that they could pose no coherent threat to the Vandals any longer, and they staggered home to Constantinople in small groups as best they could. Even six years later, the eastern treasury was still empty from the effort. The empire had stretched itself to the limit and then failed. There was no second try. And the west was in even worse shape. Since the disasters of 406 to 10, the Italian and Gallic provinces had been contributing revenues only around 15% of what they would usually and Spain was on and off at best. Britain was gone, and now so too were the richest provinces in North Africa. It was a fiscal catastrophe. The unravelling of the Western Empire that had begun before the Eastern Armada had set sail now gathered pace. At first, it was felt most keenly at the periphery of empire, on the frontiers, when the money going to board a garrison slowed to a trickle and eventually dried up altogether, many units simply disbanded themselves. Abandoning their duties to the wider empire, they now looked only to their local needs, protecting their families and communities. In the late 5th century, building shifted from wealthy Roman villas to what archaeologists call fleabergen, meaning refuge centres. These were large walled settlements, usually positioned in easily defended locations, like at the tops of hills. In short, when Roman security ceased to be supplied by the centre, local people looked to their own defence. As the empire frayed, so too did what remained of imperial politics. In the eight years from the failure of the Eastern Armada in 468, to the deposition of Romulus Augustulus in 476, the West saw a full five emperors come and go, and four of those five were either executed or overthrown. This constant instability only encouraged the last of Rome's pseudo-allies to turn on her. The Visigoths had been settled in Aquitaine in southwest Gaul since 418, and had been Roman frenemies ever since, sometimes rebelling, sometimes helping. But now, scenting blood in the water, the Visigothic king Euric made alliances with both the Suevi in Spain and the Vandals in North Africa. So, in 469, 
Yurik began a series of campaigns which saw the Visigoths take all of Gaul up to the Loire in the north, to the Alps in the southeast, and most of Spain save for the northwest, which remained in Suevi hands. At the same time, Bretons took control of Brittany. Franks carved out what would much later become France in almost all of northern Gaul up to the Rhine. And the Burgundians and Alamanni took large parts of Gaul around the Alps for themselves too. And by now, there wasn't a thing Rome could do about it. This all took some time, of course, up to around 490. But as mentioned, the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, was gone in 476. He had been ousted by a group called the Ostrogoths, of the same ethnic family of Goths as the Visigoths, the only difference being that while the Visigoths had fled the on-rushing Huns in the 370s, the Ostrogoths had stayed behind and come to the empire much later. Now they were here and claimed their share. The Ostrogoths' king, Odoacer, having kicked Romulus out and taken the Italian peninsula for himself, assumed the title of King of Italy. And then came the defining moment. He ceremoniously sent the Western imperial vestments, including the diadem and cloak that only an emperor could wear, to Constantinople. With this fateful and historic act, more than a thousand years of Roman rule came to an end. The Roman Empire fills our imaginations to this day. The gladiatorial jewels of the Colosseum, the grand sweeping sights of monumental aqueducts and temples, the idea of the mighty Roman legions sweeping all before them. Its art, architecture, laws and culture have shaped much of what we consider today to be Western civilization, And it's doubtless that Christianity's consolidation and spread is thanks in large part to the Roman Empire. Latin heavily influenced the development of all Romance languages, and to a lesser extent, English too. Today, nearly three billion people speak languages which, at least partly, descend directly from the Romans. And if you travel in many places in Europe and North Africa, you can still drive the long, straight Roman roads. Indeed, the entire countries of England, France, Spain and Italy have their distant roots in Rome's rise and fall. So, while its demise was a cataclysm of the time, particularly for the people alive to experience it, In many ways, it remains with us to this day. Whatever part of the world you're listening from, it's highly likely that your life and mine has been influenced by the Romans. For the final time in this series, thanks for listening. See you next time.